and welcome to RCP Podcasts. My name is Rebecca Coravilla and I'm a Clinical Education Fellow based at the Royal College of Physicians. I am delighted to welcome Dr. Mark Harbour, who is a consultant nephrologist at the Royal Free Hospital in London and Associate Professor at University College London Department of Nephrology with specialist interests in transplantation and immunity. Mark is also a special advisor on healthcare sustainability and climate change for the RCP. He has a long-standing interest in sustainability and how individuals and healthcare institutions can become more sustainable while also improving patient care and public health. He has been a clinical lead for NHS London Sustainability and is an advisor to UCL Partners Climate Collaborative. Thanks so much for joining us today, Mark. Could you just start by discussing how climate change and sustainability contributes to health inequalities? Yeah, thank you very much for the invite, Rebecca. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I think there are quite a few ways in which climate change and sustainability impact on this. The perhaps the most obvious one is will be the extremes of temperature. To put this at one very great extreme, the roughly three billion people who by 2050 might be living outside what would be a habitable environment so that's in terms of heat or or drought or so on so that's the that's the most obvious way that that will impact and about um, unicef um, has stated that about one billion children which is almost half the world's population currently live in areas of extreme risk of environmental hazard so you can see that quite quickly there's a a large chunk of, of the population who will be at risk and typically those are people in low income countries who are more vulnerable in the first place and don't have access to escape easily from them. I think globally that's one of the ways it impacts and there are other ways so for instance air pollution which is made worse by climate change and of course contributes to climate change. So a recent report said that approximately 5.1 million early deaths globally because of air pollution and again typically the people who are affected by that are people who are on low incomes um, who are more vulnerable for a variety of reasons um, especially in, in low income countries but even in developed countries be people living on arterial routes and so on and then there are other aspects like access to clean water access to food and as ecosystems start to change again it will be people who are perhaps most have greatest burden of health inequalities who are going to run into trouble with that and I suppose the final bit of that is the fact that there will be um, inevitably much more migration or much more displacement of people and again it will be those people who are typically more vulnerable um, uh, who don't have the ability to stay in the environment they're in so I think there are quite a lot of ways on a on a kind of global scale where as the environment changes people who are more vulnerable run into trouble more vulnerable just generally but also those who have illnesses are going to be much more vulnerable because those with chronic conditions are going to be exacerbated by all of this and their access to healthcare is going to be diminished particularly in those who become displaced and that's a real concern for us in the health profession I think does sound very concerning um, from those statistics. It's clear this is a significant issue. Can you explain why physicians need to be concerned by the impact of climate change and sustain sustainability 
looking at the impending winter and the and the current pressures that we're facing in the healthcare service, do physicians really need to add the impact of climate change onto the long list of things that they're already worrying about? Yes, I, th- I think that's a really good point. I mean, I, I think most he- healthcare systems are probably feeling still strained after COVID, and I know the NHS is still beleaguered for lots of reasons and feels underfunded and there's a sort of sense of exhaustion. So why do you want to add in something that's just a bit more miserable and we can't do anything about? Those are several answers to that. One is that, firstly, there is quite a lot that we can do about it. And I suppose the other bit is that this is a part of our job description. So if the climate crisis is going to result in more illness, so for instance, we know that more people die, there are more out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. When we have days of high pollution, when there are heat waves, we know that there's excessive deaths. So you know, it'd be quite nice to do things that would work, you know, avoid that. And the other bit of this is that the NHS is responsible for about 40% of public sector greenhouse gas emissions and about 5% of entire national greenhouse gas emissions. So so we contribute quite a lot to this problem, the NHS. It's an enormous organisation but has a very big carbon footprint. Mm. And some of that's contributing directly to unworthiness. So we have a huge amount of money spent transporting people and things around in vehicles that we know contribute to air pollution and contribute to lung cancer plus uh, chest infections and so on and so forth. So there's a, there's a good argument for us doing things that that might be uh, that might be better. And the other bit about this is you know, we need to think about resilience planning. So we've just been through quite a difficult time, but it's not difficult to see how hospitals are going to be taken out through flooding. We've had that in London two hospitals going out in one day. A couple of years back, we've had um, St Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital going out for about 48 hours because their servers overheated. And so there's quite a lot of important stuff to be done with resilience. Uh, really to make sure that you've got a service that can still look after your staff and look after your patients and that you're able to operate if the temperature hits 40 or plus and if there are these other climatic events. So that's that's important to be done because we, we will increasingly not be able to deliver what we want to be able to do. But I also think it's um, if you if you interview junior doctors and nurses and say how do they feel about the climate crisis, words that keep coming up are um, powerless, you know, depressed, anxious, and mm. saying goes beyond the medical profession. Basically, anyone you ask, particularly young people, uh, there is this sort of sense of well, there's nothing we can do. And I think that uh, completely understandable, but it's but it's 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 difficult to do anything with that. And I think what you need to be able to do, and we need to be able to do as an organisation, is to say, well, what can we offer staff that is positive and constructive, um, mm-hmm. rather than just getting into a doom loop about this. And there is tons because the NHS isn't very green, but also there are lots of things you could do that improve care. And most of the things, many of the things that you can do, actually save money plus a greener, plus of a patient benefit and often have a staff benefit as well. So there's mm. there's quite a lot to feel good about if we can uh, if we can think slightly differently about the way we've become to practice medicine. Wow, I didn't realise that the NHS is responsible for 40% of public sector greenhouse gas emissions and 5% of total national greenhouse gas emissions. 
that is quite a shocking statistic. Um, and I think you make a really good point there that I suppose many interventions that are beneficial for climate change will also have a positive impact for our patients in terms of outcomes and are also cost effective and so have pos positive knock-on effects for staff. So I suppose just leading on from that, what do you think, in your opinion, NHS, NHS organisations could do to tackle climate change and healthcare sustainability or what could they do more, I should probably say? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I know in a way, some of that's made easy for me by the, the, the Greener NHS plan that came out in 2019 under Simon Stevens with a whole suggestion of things that can be done that the NHS is supposed to sign up to. And that's relatively straightforward things like switching the uh, energy provider from fossil fuel energy electricity provider to a uh, renewable energy provider to other more complex things like trying to change your fleet to um, non-fossil fuel vehicles to a, a variety of other things that um, big and small that you can do so changing inhalers from MDI inhalers which have hydrofluoro alkane which is a very sort of potent greenhouse gas to other inhalers which um, with to no detriment to the patient that don't have that and therefore don't contribute that bit and changing some of the anaesthetics. So there's there's a whole variety of things that were sort of recommended and prescriptive with that. And what's been really nice about this sort of journey, if you like, is that you see more and more people saying, well, actually, what we could do is we can change the plastic bottles that our eye drops are in ophthalmology. Can we can we do something different with this? Does everything have to be wrapped in plastic? Can we do things in a different way? So there's, I mean, what's lovely about this is that given the chance, what we do best is innovate uh, and invent. Um, and, and come up with imaginative ideas, and that's the really exciting bit: is that you can you can have it all to some extent. You can have better patient care by stopping and thinking about it. You can come up with something that's greener and everyone feels better about. So there's lots and lots of opportunity for this, and and a part of the challenge is to cut and paste it. So if someone's doing something really good in Exeter, how do we all know about it and use that and 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 get it in? How do we break down the barriers that beleaguered management you know, can say, well, actually, I, I can see how we can do this and it's beneficial? So mm. there, there are those um, aspects to the things that we can do as institutions. I would also say that there are the organisations that we need to think about. So, for instance, if you're the, the Royal College of Surgeons, your Royal College of Physicians, the Royal College of Nurses, and you have is how do we think about how we work as an organization how do we reduce our overall carbon footprint conferences are a big bit of that is how do you reduce the carbon footprint of conferences do we have to send out all our magazines to people in hard copy with wrapped in plastic so this the more you think about them, the more there is to do but because everything's on such a large scale you can make a very big difference by making some small changes so think those bit and then the other bit is uh, us as individuals so there's the NHS is about 1.2 million staff so in fact if we can all start making individual changes and take that home to our family and then take that home to our community then suddenly you start to make a very big difference and this is very much a, it seems to me a, a, a social movement rather than um, a sudden kind of big bang moment where everyone changes it's a sort of social change and people kind of moving following after each other 
So mm. I think there's lots and lots of potential. Very exciting. It's just a question of how you implement it at speed yeah. and make sure you're doing the right things. I can identify with that definitely because I agree that when we start listing all the issues related to this problem, it can feel really overwhelming. And I suppose um, just thinking as an, the average physician working in an NHS trust up and down the country, I mean, what would you have any top tips that you could offer sort of just just for this for this average physician working up and down the country that they could implement to help tackle health inequalities related to climate change and healthcare sustainability? So I, th- I think that's a really good question. And, it, and it's, uh, I suppose I'd preface my answer by saying, it is really important not to get overwhelmed and a bit depressed by it. So there's the, what can I do for the sustainability bit? And a, just a good example of that is when I first started talking about this, everyone would say to me, well, the recycling bins are a terrible mess and everything goes in the same place. And you're absolutely right. It kind of drives you nuts because you can see them every day and they're full of everything and nothing's mm. being recycled. And it's all a bit depressing because it's in your face every day. But whilst that's important to sort out, it's probably quite difficult to sort out. And the trick is to try and find something impactful and achievable that you think you working with a few people can get over the wire, first of all, because it's sort of rather addictive when you when you do that. And so I think there are many examples of things people can do. And we can probably put links to the to this podcast about the things we can do as individuals and the things that we can do in hospitals, certainly in nephrology. And transplantation they've done a list of doing a list of top 12 things you can do to start with as a, as a kind of starter pack of things and there are many other examples of that so i think there are those things and then there's the other bit is well if we for what do we do about um health inequality in particular so we want to do stuff that's green and pretty much everything we do that's green is going to be helpful but are there other things that help with health inequality? And there's a sort of Venn diagram that overlaps very nicely because you, for instance, one of the things we should be doing is promoting active travel. Well, if you can promote active travel, particularly in communities where they have high obesity rates and low activity rates, they're the ones who actually gain much more than anyone else. So going from being essentially sedentary to being active and walking for 20 minutes a day has a profound effect and and you gain more from that. So there are those sorts of things one ought to start thinking about. Sorry to interrupt you, Dr. Hubbard. I just wanted to, just for those those listeners that might not know what active travel is. Essentially um, making your way not by car, I think broadly. So that was cycling, walking, what have you. But the, the, the data for just essentially pottering around uh, you know, getting the car to work and, and wandering around home or doing that plus going for a 20 minute walk a day shows enormous health benefits. I mean, even reductions in cancer and dementia, osteoporosis, but lots of cardiovascular diabetes and so on. So, so there's a huge health benefit. And and typically it's it's those, you know, by definition, those are at the, the wrong end of health equality who stand to gaze most from that. So it's in our interest to to find a way of promoting a healthier living. And there's huge amounts of evidence that if you have a more fruit and plant-based diet, that your survival benefits are significant. And that also has an environmental benefit that's quite substantial. So could we be, be promoting that a bit more, other things that we could do with that? So the other thing that is really important um, is, a, is a shift to prevention. So our healthcare systems as they stand, are essentially likely to 
implode under their own weight eventually if we spend more and more and more and more in the last year of people's lives then there'll be less and less money for schools and libraries or whatever else and i think it's much more efficient to stop people getting sick in the first place so one of the most effective things that you can do um, for people is to have a low salt diet that's the cheapest thing that you can do there's a long-term impact and of course stopping smoking and so on and so forth and and the people who are most vulnerable to this again are those are typically on on low incomes and a nice example of this was uh, did a, 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 there was a study in um, 1981 i think to uh, to 2000 where they compared primary prevention, so stopping people smoking, helping people lose weight, and so on and so forth, um, and compared with secondary prevention. And they found they saved four times as many lives by doing primary prevention as secondary prevention. So, I mean, it's sort of it's sort of obvious in a way, but it's cheaper, it's greener, as it turns out, to do that and to keep people healthy. And it's also, of course, much, much better um, public health uh, and and better for our patients. So that So a shift to better maternity care, better primary care with um, uh, for, for young people in particular, but also at each stage, each decade of our lives are saying, well, how do we keep fit? How do we do these things to stop us becoming unwell in the first place? As it turns out, is much greener and more effective than trying to resolve the, the illness with tablets, which is what we've sort of fallen into. Mm, no, it's really interesting because I've never really thought about primary prevention as being a greener. You know, it has added benefits for being even being greener because I suppose you're not only helping patients live longer, but you're avoiding complications, which of course can be really costly financially, but also to the environment. So there's an interesting perspective on that. Thank you. I just wondered whether there would be that whether you had any examples of any changes to either your your own healthcare practice or of your colleagues that have had an impact on healthcare inequality from climate change. Well, I can talk a bit about nephrology. So, so kidney disease is very ungreen. Um, so, chronic kidney disease. Um, fortunately, people stay alive for a long time, but it can go on for a very long time. And dialysis is is environmentally really not very green and you're much more vulnerable to chronic kidney disease again if you're in uh, uh, you're in a group that's that's suffering health inequalities you can it's more type 2 diabetes as you know globally type 2 diabetes in particular ethnic groups that are really really at risk and hammered by this Mm. um, and and suffer enormously as populations Um, and so the so the aim is to try and get to those groups and really get prevention in place to stop them requiring dialysis. And then the other side of this is if you need dialysis, actually, can we get you transplanted with a successful kidney transplant early and can we make that transplant last a long time? And your quality of life and uh, and your length of life is likely to be much better if we can get you a, a good kidney early. But again, the people who at the at the brunt end of health inequalities are less likely to get on the transplant list early, we know that, and uh, often present late in their kidney disease compared with others. So those are the sorts of things, again, where it's much better medicine if we can identify these patients early, we can give them the optimum treatment early, and we can engage with them in a way that means that they, we deliver really just better care all round. It's definitely in our interest to do that. It's much cheaper to look after people in that way. and 
it's much greener as it turns out. So there are lots of lots of co-benefits from this apart from being what we want to do, I think as society and as medics in general. So there are those aspects to giving access to the right treatment and right prevention. There are lots of things we can do about dialysis itself to try and make it greener and so on and so forth, but that doesn't really reflect on uh, health inequalities. Globally, again, it's a, it's a, you know, there are many, many countries where there just isn't access to transplantation. So if you get end-stage renal disease, you will perish because you, you can't get access to dialysis, you can't afford dialysis. So developing programs that help people have transplants is really a much cheaper a way of looking after people and give some better quality of life. So I think that's probably something we should be doing at a much greater scale globally is, is essentially cutting out the dialysis bit by providing access to transplantation. just wondered if we could just, I suppose, rounding up our discussion to a close, what would be some key take-home messages that you would like listeners to this podcast to take away about healthcare sustainability and climate change? Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... I think this is really, really important. And I also think I completely recognise that people just get overwhelmed by it, a bit depressed and feel powerless with it. And I would say that please don't do that because there is tons and tons to do. And there's much more doing this. The zeitgeist is changing. You'll find that there are more and more people talking about this. And it's not just talking between departments and between institutions. Um, there's now lots of conversations with industry and with councils. And so people see the benefit of working together with this. So it can be a bit depressing, but don't let that get to you. And I think my my advice on a sort of personal level is if you see some grim um, climactic news and there'll be lots of it around, is to say, well, actually, I'm not going to dwell on that. Is there one thing that I can, with a group, work on that's achievable and impactful? And there's lots of guidance mm. of things you might try and do, as I say, and I can, we may be able to attach some links to this, but I think the trick is to try and say what's something that we think we can do um, that's not going to be too impossible. And it's very helpful if someone else has done and another institution has done something similar that you can borrow. And so there are plenty of examples uh, of things like that that people have started implementing. And the other thing is that you know, industry, industry wants to know where we're going. They don't like change and uncertainty. So again, starting to say, oh, how can we build this in? Um, is pretty important getting patients involved and I think not being the one person I think if you're the only person or institution that's you know, um, championing this it's, it's really really difficult and I think you trying to link up with other people uh, is very helpful but it is it's it's more positive than it sounds there are lots of things happening and because the scale can be huge um, that's very important and I, I probably just finished by giving an example with nephrology about two and a half years ago we thought that we should be, um, uh, we should have a sustainability group in nephrology, and that was set up quite quickly. And in the UK, and we thought that that's super. And then, um, and then it became apparent that many other countries thought this what we're doing is marvellous, and that the UK was far ahead of other countries. And instead of that being cheery, it was kind of slightly depressing because it meant that if, that actually is the rest of the world traveling more slowly shouldn't we all be traveling at the same speed so as part of that was then to link up with international groups and mm. to say the same thing and to cut and paste it so essentially in nephrology there's a the green k movement and the aim behind that is to say well we're all asking the same thing but let's travel at speed and there's no reason why that shouldn't happen in cardiology or 
gynecology or wherever it is on, on, a, on a global scale. And I think that bit is very exciting as well. So find other like-minded people and don't give up would be my advice, I think. No, I think these are really good messages. And I think I really uh, pick up on what you're saying in terms of that we do need to be collaborative, perhaps not just within our own specialties, but looking at other specialties and sort of learning from what they're doing. And I think it's a good idea to to link some of the, the sites that you referenced in the description of this episode of RCP Podcasts. I would just like to say thanks again to Mark for the thought-provoking discussion today. I think there have been a number of practical take-home messages that are really useful to listeners who are interested in doing more to tackle health inequalities related to climate change. Thanks again, Mark. My pleasure. Thank you very much.